Hey guys, we're about to have our Friday group and I wanted to get the Daniel teaching in um, before the week is over and I will probably do the urgent education tomorrow and that's my cat walking across the screen. Uh, but we're almost done with Daniel and um, I mean to me it's like let's dive right into Revelation. That's what kind of kicked off this whole thing. But uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11, and we're getting into a very interesting uh, chapter. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to set my timer, um, because I may have to do a part one and part two, um, but I want to uh, at least start diving into this topic because it can get really confusing in that chapter on, okay, is... Is the angel talking about uh, a ruler during Daniel's time or immediately after Daniel's time in one of those kingdoms that he saw? Or is he referring to a future Antichrist? Let me get my hair tamed here. Um, that will be an abomination of desolation. Uh, I, or is it both? Which is very much, the, you know, a probability because like we've learned in a lot of these prophecies, there's, uh, a dual application where you might have an immediate fulfillment in a partial sense, and then you have the full fulfillment that will come at the end of the age. So in Daniel 11, we're actually going to start at verse 2. Um, well, no, uh, we'll start at verse 1. I'm not sure why I put in here to start at verse 2. That's kind of strange. Now then, oh, I see, because verse 1 was the end of our last one. Got it. Got it. That's kind of weird. Okay. Now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Now, this is where you know Daniel had visions and the angels came to interpret the things that he was seeing. And it's also where uh, Gabriel told Daniel that he was having to fight the prince of Persia. The prince of Greece was next, um, or vice versa. Um, not sure. I'd have to go back and look. And that Michael had to come help him. The reason they were um, resisting these princes, these supernatural princes, is because if they didn't, they would have been able to do just whatever they wanted to in world domination. And so the kingdom of God um, is fighting against the domination of these kings on the earth by fighting the supernatural rulers in the heavenlies. Okay, so that's very important. And it's why we should pray for our leaders because um, if we don't, they can be subject to forces that are outside the realm of God. And um, so anyway, um, he, you know, so he's explaining that after um, the Prince of Persia, there's going to be these three kings, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so why these nations? Because we've had other nations, like Germany in particular, was very anti-Christ, anti-God. But why out of all the dominant nations is it Babylon, Persia, um, Greece, and then Rome? And a lot of it is they brought in certain things that were needed for the coming of Jesus the first time. Like the Romans brought in um, safer roads, paved roads, um, lots of government systems and life systems that were needed for uh, his first coming. 
uh, also how they interacted with Israel, including the land they took. So if you look at Egypt, Egypt was a superpower and they did interact with Israel and they are one of the seven heads that are referred to in Revelation, but they did not take the land of Israel. So God is concerned with Israel, the land of Israel, and so are his um, angelic forces at his request. So with the Persian thing, it's like, okay, who are these kings that will come after these three kings that will come after? So this is from, let me see if I've got in here, uh, BibleStudyTools.com. I looked to see if anybody had researched the history and knew which ones had come. And it says the three were, of course, Cyrus, who reigned alone after the death of Darius the Mede, his uncle Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, and then Darius Histasipes. Gosh, I have no idea. I'm butchering that completely. There was another between um, Cambyses and Darius called Smyrtus, the magician, but he only reigned like seven months. And being an imposter, he's left out of the historical record of that nation as he is in uh, Ptolemy's canon is, uh, there, but he's not in the, the Persian. Now, uh, it says, not that these were all the kings of Persia after Darius the Mede, for according to the above canon, there reigned six more after them. But because these kings in particular had a connection with the Jews, and under them their affairs had different turns and changes, respecting their restoration and settlement, the building of their city and temple, and also, as also because these kings stood and the monarchy under them was strong and flourishing, whereas afterwards it began to decline, and chiefly it is for the sake of the fourth king that these are observed, who laid the foundation of the destruction of the Persian monarchy by the Grecians. The fourth shall be richer than they all. This is Xerxes. And he uh, exceeded his predecessors in wealth and riches, enjoying what they, by their conquests or otherwise, had amassed together, to which he greatly added, Cyrus had collected a vast deal of riches from various nations, especially from Babylon. And that is where it says that God would give him the treasures of darkness and hidden riches in secret places. Cyrus did. He got all of that from the Babylonian kingdom. Cambyses increased the store by his victories and the plunder of temples wherever he came, and then out of the flames of which were saved 300 talents of gold and 20,000 talents of silver, which he carried away, together with the famous circle of gold that encompassed the tomb of King Ozymandias and Darius, the father of Xerxes, laid heavy taxes upon the people and hoarded up his money. Hence, he is called by the Persians, Kaflov, or the huckster or hoarder. And Xerxes came into all of it, and he became richer than them all, of whom Justin says, and by his strength through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. So it's like he picked a fight against Greece, and Greece basically whipped him. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and they lost they lost being the superpower. But I, I wanted to read some of this. I've got more. But remember, Xerxes, if I'm not mistaken, he was the king that Esther married. Um so I would have to look in that book, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. So then it continues. Through his vast riches, which are the sinews of war, he collected a prodigious army out of all provinces, which he raised to make war against the Grecians, being moved to it by Mardonius, a relation of his who was very ambitious of being at the head of a large army. 
those, those darn bad advisors, three years were spent in preparing for the expedition and forces were gathered out of all parts of the then known habitable world, out of all of the West under Hamilcar, general of the Carthaginians, with whom he made a league, and out of all the East under his own command, his army, according to Justin, consisted of 700,000 of his own and 300,000 auxiliaries. Diodorus Siculus made it much less to be about 300,000 men, and then another guy, all the forces together, it equaled 2,641,610 men. Um, another guy, Grotius, says that it was actually 5,283,000. So I don't know, but that is a vast army, which it says he will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. So obviously this prophetic word has been fulfilled, of which Daniel had no idea was going to happen because none of this stuff was even in place at the time. Okay, uh, let's see. The, um, okay, the words may be rendered, he shall stir up all, even the realm of Grecia, by the preparation he made and the vast army he brought into the field. He raised all the cities and states of Greece to combine together to withstand him. And this step of his is what irritated the Grecians and put them upon later attempts to avenge themselves on the Persians for this attack. And they never deserted, uh, in which they never deserted from till they had ruined the Persian Empire, which they did under Alexander. So basically, a hook is in the nose of Xerxes to attack the Grecians. It doesn't sound like there was any reason to do so. And the Grecians were so upset about it that they vowed to get vengeance. And they did not stop until the kingdom of Persia was brought to nothing. Uh, and Alexander the Great was a brilliant military leader. So I could see that happening. Uh, and so, in his letter to Darius, he said, Your ancestors entered into Macedonia and other parts of Greece and did us damage when they had received no affront from us as the cause of it. And now I create general of the Grecians provoked by you and desirous of avenging the injury done by the Persians have passed over into Asia. And it is for the sake of this, the destruction of the Persian Empire by Alexander, that this exposition of Xerxes is here hinted at and to pave the way for the account of Alexander and his successors and the following part of his prophecy. So the power-hungry decision of the, by the Persians, King Xerxes to be exact, sparked Alexander the Great's decision to make war against Persia, just as the scripture said way before that happened. Okay. All right. And then verse three, then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had for his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, this is another reference to Alexander the Great, because we've seen a couple um, already. And um, it says uh, in the uh, Wikipedia, the death of Alexander the Great and the subsequent related events have been the subject of debates. According to the Babylonian Astronomical Diary, Alexander died in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II, in Babylon between the evening of um, June 10th and the evening of June 11th, 323 BC at the age of 32. 
Macedonians and local residents wept at the news of the death, while Achaemenid subjects were forced to shave their heads. Excuse me, the mother of Darius III, having learned of Alexander's death, had depression and killed herself later. Historians vary in their assessments of primary sources about his death, which has resulted in different views about its cause and circumstances. Okay, so I find that fascinating that he died in Nebuchadnezzar II in Babylon, you know, in the palace. Um, that really is uh, stunning. And, um, and then it says that after his death, so because, you know, obviously it was sudden, he had no heir uh, tagged. His empire disintegrated into a 40-year period of war and chaos in 321 BC. The Hellenistic, ward of, uh, Hellenistic world eventually settled into four stable power blo blocks. The uh, Ptolemaic Kingdom of, of Egypt, the Seleucid Empire in the east, the Kingdom of Pergamon in Asia Minor, and then Macedon. Um, the ones that, we, that you'll see uh, play out a lot is actually the Ptolemaic and then the Seleucid because the Seleucid Empire is what chapter 11 is talking about. And then it was the Ptolemaic that had, um, oh, uh, Mark Antony, Octavian, and Cleopatra. All of those people showed up after um, Alexander the Great and, and basically Rome began to, to gain the, the superpower. Um, so then... In verse 5, it says, The king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to, to secure the alliance, but she will lose her influence over him, and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters, but when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. When he returns to Egypt, he will carry back their idols with him, along with priceless articles of gold and silver. For some years afterward, he will leave the king of the north alone. Now, what is fascinating to me is how detailed this prophecy is to Daniel before any of these people even arrived on the scene. So what exactly is this talking about? So I'm going to refer again, uh, I think it's um, the lifehopetruth.com. They broke down the history that occurred. So the uh, Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt, this is referring to. And the king of the north we're about to dive into is the Seleucid Empire, okay, that centralized in Syria. So the two kings or kingdoms were hostile, the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic toward each other, and Israel was in the middle of it, literally and figuratively. So things get dicey, so I'm just going to go ahead and read this to you from there. So the expositors explains the king of the south was to be Ptolemy I, or Sodor, son of Lagos, whose ambitions extended far beyond the borders of Egypt, over which Alexander had placed him in charge, to Palestine and the rest of Asia. So he wants to take over some more land. The prince under Ptolemy I, who had become stronger than him, was Seleucus Nicator of the Seleucid Empire. The agreement was a proposed peace treaty that called for Antiochus II to marry Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy II. But Antiochus already had a wife, a powerful and influential woman, 
named Laodicea. She did not take kindly to being divorced. She therefore organized a successful conspiracy. She managed to have both Berenice um, and her infant son, whom she had born to Antiochus, assassinated. Not long afterward, the king himself was poisoned to death in 247 BC, and the pro Laodicea party encountered a, uh, uh, engineered a coup d'etat that put her in power as queen regent during the minority of her son, Seleucus II. In this manner, then, the prophecy was fulfilled concerning Berenice that she would be handed over or given up in the uh, New King James Version along with the nobles who supported her in Antioch. Then verse 7 is referring to Ptolemy III organized a great expeditionary force against Syria in order to avenge his sister's death. This war raged from 241 to 240, or 246 to 241. Finally, he returned to Egypt laden with spoil. He succeeded on other fronts as well, for he reunited the western end of Libya with the Ptolemaic uh, domains after it had enjoyed 12 years of independence. He also recovered all of his father's conquests on the coast of Asia Minor and temporarily gained control of some portions of Thrace. Okay. So I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll pick back up next week on this. But why am I giving you all this history? Because you're not going to remember it. Here's what I want you to walk away from, because I'm not going to remember it. I want you to walk away with how precise and detailed this prophecy was and how it came to pass exactly as it was said. That's important because we're studying the end of the age. We're, and obviously the marketplace, you know, plays a role. We've already looked at that as far as Daniel and his influence. But God's word is true. And everything that's in the book of Revelation, it's going to happen exactly like he said. The only thing is we won't know for sure the nations and things that will be involved, like the 10, um, you know, nations and all of that, the three that will be subdued by the the Antichrist, and then it becomes eight nations and things like that. We don't know that. But we know enough to begin to watch things and begin to see things as they progress. So it's fascinating that all of this happened, uh, exactly how it was, it was prophesied. So we're going to read verses 9 through 12, and then we will pick back up um, next week. Okay, so he said, Go now, Daniel, for what I have said is kept secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be... Oh, hang on. I'm in the wrong one. Good grief. Uh, here we go. Later, the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will soon return to his own land. However, the sons of the king of the north will assemble a mighty army, army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress. Then in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. After the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies, but his success will be short-lived. Okay, so this is going back to the Egypt Seleucid um, situation here. So although he did not enter Egypt itself, Seleucus II regained control of northern Syria and Phoenicia. And then verses 10 through 12 says, um, this passage foretells an important new development in the struggle between the two great powers with the advent of Antiochus the Great and his conquest of the Holy Land. Antiochus the Third 
next launched an expedition against Phoenicia and Palestine uh, between 219 and 218 BC that ended in a serious setback at the Battle of Raphia, where he was soundly beaten by the smaller army of Ptolemy IV. But finally, in 203, Antiochus saw his opportunity to strike Egypt again since Ptolemy IV had just died and had been succeeded by Ptolemy V, or Epiphanes is his name, who was a mere boy of four. Important, important person, okay? These are important people to our study. All right, so we'll we'll pick up uh, next week, but again, just marvel at the detailed, concise, and precise prophecies that this angel gave Daniel before any of these people even existed. It's really, it's really neat. We can trust God. We can trust his word. So tomorrow I have plans to do our urgent education. So I will see you then.